Okay, here we go, here we go. Fold your hands, close your eyes, let's pray. Here we go, here we go. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. All right, things are busy, so uh, just a couple things. We're not going to meet next week. I know you're honorable people, but I can already feel your souls departing from me <laughs> toward other more important things. So we're not going to go next week. We'll come back at the end of January. So you get, I know, you know, when you asked me how long this would go, I know I said, you know, kind of autumn to Easter, but there's always so much gap in between. It turns out to be not that much. And there's so much stuff we need to do. So thanks for, in, uh, you know, working around again. You know, last week we had the reindeer run this week. This, is, though, is um, Christmas sharing is one of the coolest things that happens here. Uh, there's so many volunteers who come out and it got changed a little bit by COVID. We used to have 50 or 60 or 70 families in the building on a Friday and Saturday night, which was such great fun. There was one year we had 31 language groups in the building and it was a chance for people who don't have food and toys and clothing to come and you know we provide food and toys clothing and toys it's really great uh, COVID sort of killed that it's organized through the public schools they give us the names and um, people show up and are very very generous and COVID pushed it outside and so now it's not quite as intimate as it was, although it is a well-oiled machine. If you want to play, it's always the first or second weekend in December. I don't know what it will look like next year. I think everybody would love to have people inside and warm and eating Christmas cookies and talking to people. This is a little impersonal, but it's a ton of good work. And just for St. John, I mean, you'll ask at some point where the money goes and stuff. This weekend, traditionally, this congregation would give forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars away into the community to people that we don't know, and so it's most of our. It's not most of our. It's one big chunk of our um, giving that we do elsewhere during the year. And remember, the early Christians. We talked about this. You don't just care for people in your community. You care for people in all communities. And so this is a good example. And. Loads of those people outside are St. John people. There are people from all different churches. This is cooperative across, um, you know, 10 or 15 churches in Wheaton. But uh, a load of those people outside are St. John people. And it's not just this. It's, of course, the sorting and the gathering and the organization and the setup and the teardown. So it's really a nice thing. If you want to do it next year, it would be, it would be great. Then uh, through Christmas now, things will get busy. Uh, you know, come, come around as you can. There's uh, two possibilities on Christmas Eve. One is at four o'clock, there's lessons and carols, which does not have the Holy Supper. So often there's this thing about, I have unchurched friends or I have family who don't, you know, who don't commune or I have people. So there's a lessons and carols based uh, on lessons and carols at, at uh, King's College in Cambridge and the music is fabulous and hymn singing and all that kind of stuff and then there is a Holy Supper regular mass which is phenomenal on Christmas Eve and so um, if you want to come and then Christmas Day uh, there's also a service so just in your head everything in the evening at, at St. John starts at 7 and everything in the day starts at 10 a.m. So if there's an evening service, it's always at 7. If there's a day service, it's always at 10, so that you don't have to think about it. It's just, we'll be here. 
although occasionally we add things on like uh, you know, the 4 a.m. service if we need some more. So then, going into January, again, it will be very busy. There's a school that we support in Little Village. They want to come out, and so there'll be a big pancake breakfast on the second Sunday, I think. Uh, no, maybe the third Sunday. I have to get this right. No, hey, is it the second Sunday? Help me. And then what's the third Sunday? No, but what's the, oh yes, that's right. So the second Sunday is the pancake breakfast, and the third Sunday there's this time and talent thing, but you get 50 bucks if you think of a better name for that. But it's basically all the people at St. John who do things. So if you've always wanted to run a chainsaw, we have a group for that, uh, you know. I mean, or if you prefer to, you know, throw darts, there's a group for that. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of things going on here. People sort of lay out their, interests and wares and you can come and goof off and uh, see what's happening and then the following weekend there's a men and women's retreat now we've gone off and done this in the woods we've gone to hotels this year we're going to do it in house uh, but there'll be a, knee, a Friday and a Saturday and I think I think maybe it's women on Friday and men on Saturday same program uh, we split it for a range of reasons uh, among them is that um, if we if we do men and women you don't have to worry about childcare so much, although if you do need childcare, let us know, we can figure something out for that too, because we just, it's dinner. Uh, it'll be Patrick Byans, who um, preaches here occasionally, was the chair of theology at Concordia University. He'll be our speaker on Revelation, so it'll be kind of interesting. Uh, and then immediately after that, almost it's Lent, you know, and it's off to the races all the way to Easter. So if you're gonna join, and if you're gonna be around, um, Easter Vigil is the time. That's a traditional time that Christians were brought into the church. This happened way back, even in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, fourth century, right? People would come, they'd be baptized. It was, you know, the kind of stuff that Christians did then and what they do now. You'd come to the door, they would face you west, they would exercise you and you would curse the devil you turn east and come inside because Jesus left from the east and is coming back from the east, right? And so they would turn you east, bring you inside, strip you naked, take you down into the water, bring you out, anoint you with oil, clothe you in white. And they would, um, you'd, uh, there's this beautiful thing about how you would, you would come down into the water, into darkness, and emerge into this room that was covered with gold mosaics. And, and then they would say to you, you don't know anything. Uh, and then they would take you to the Eucharist. So, and then they would say, you have no idea what just happened to you. Stay here for the week, and we'll explain. So they would keep everybody for the week and uh, teach them what had just happened. It's remarkable, remarkable stuff. Anyway, there's a deep history of bringing people in on Easter Vigil. And um, so, you know, this is kind of our deal with us. If you want us to be your pastors, we will, but we only mark your names on a page once a year, which is confusing sometimes, but kind of an ancient practice. Uh, it gives us a chance to date before we kiss. So, uh, very busy, but pay attention, come along, and uh, we'll do what we want. Uh, questions about anything? So, I do have one question, which is a nice question left over from last week, which was, how many times 
can you be forgiven if you continue to fall into the same sins? I think this very much depends on whether or not these sins are against me. <laughs> Other people might be patient, but I, no. So, you know, this is, uh, this is good, you know. You know, for the math geniuses in the room, you know the answer is 70 times seven. Uh, so at least 500 times or so. But you also know that when Jesus said that, his tongue was in his cheek. He's basically saying it just goes on and on and on. So there are two questions here, one theoretical and one practical. So the first theoretical one is, if I keep doing the same old things over and over again, can I be forgiven? Yes, you can. Every sin that you offer to Jesus is forgiven. And so you remember last week I told you the unforgivable sin was the one you hold back like this. And um, if you hold it out of Jesus' reach, he won't force you to be forgiven. But then you'll have to deal with that one for an eternity. If you really want to be on your own, you can be on your own. But uh, it's not a good idea. Your sins aren't good for you. Holiness is joy. And Jesus forgives more sins than your God. So he takes away your sins, don't take them back. All that was last week. Now there is the practical question of... I continue to give in to the same thing. These are questions sometimes about addiction, or they can be questions about <clears throat> being angry with somebody, maybe in your family, with your spouse, or with your kids, or, you know, you're just a liar, and you got trouble not lying. Uh, there are ways that you can move beyond that, and frankly, private confession is a good time to kind of talk about that. What normally happens in private confession is people start slowly and then ramp up. So there's a few things they want to talk about and then suddenly at some point the floodgates break. And there is a point in private confession where you can get some care from your pastor. Well, you should try this or how about trying that. So if you're brave enough, we'll talk about, we'll talk about that next time when we come back. But uh, there are strategies to avoid sinfulness. So for example, with pornography, which is a very common you know, it's very common and, uh, you know, in our women have caught up to men now, so it's kind of an equal opportunity enslaver. But my sort of normal initial prescription for people who are, have trouble with pornography is to um, um, something for their eyes, something for their hand, and something for their mouth. So I normally say, put a crucifix or put, a, put an icon of Jesus, great when it's Jesus, the icon of Jesus the teacher, put that on the device that you use for pornography. So if you use your computer or you use your phone, put the icon. So when you look at your phone or you look at your computer to log in, Jesus is looking back at you with that law eye and gospel eye, right? Or I often tell people, carry a crucifix. It's very hard to curse your neighbor or watch pornography or um, steal from the till at the bank if you have a crucifix in your hand. There's just something about it. it. Just doesn't seem to work that well. And then also a little bit of memory work. And so today, Wednesday nights, people always uh, ask, you know, why do we sing the same thing over and over again? And the answer is memory work. Every one of those songs is a scripture verse, right? You'll find them if you read through the Psalms, for example, 
one day you'll stumble over, right? Or Jesus, remember me, the words from the thief on the cross. Or, you know, you'll find something. Uh, you'll, you'll suddenly come into it. And so, you know, there are strategies that you can use to avoid your sinfulness. Um, so, for example, from forever, uh, there's a rule that the pastors are never alone with a woman or a child in this congregation. And if you see that happening, something is haywire and you should go talk to somebody. Um, so, and this is horribly sexist and, you know, drives uh, especially younger people crazy and, you know, it can get, but on the other hand, what has been more devastating than the church than, you know, um, sexual abuse? Maybe the Crusades, okay, you know, but the church is deserving everything, it's getting everything it deserved and more. If you had to sell everything and shut it all down and start over, you'd sort of say, okay, that's the, we knew that was coming. And so there, there are all these things that you, you know, vicar is hard on you, and I know it's early in the morning and you work hard and long, but what is the first thing I ever said to you? The very first thing, the first aphorism that I give every vicar, what's the very first thing? Work hard, vicar, come through for me. Don't screw this up. Uh, oh, see, this is the, you know, it's always my fault. I feel like I'm your father. Let me prompt you. <clears throat> you don't get... No, 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 vicar, vicar! <laughs> hey, in case I forgot to give you this, here's your first aphorism. You don't get out of trouble, you stay out of trouble. There you go. That's all you need to know in life. You don't get out of trouble, you stay out of trouble. So there you go. It's, it's true for all of you, too. You don't get out of trouble, you stay out of trouble. Come on. So, I want to take you then now kind of into a couple, couple other levels of forgiveness. So last week, you know, we talked about how much... Um, God loves you, and, uh, but the practicalities of forgiving are sometimes lost on us. So I start with just this little bit from Luther. Every once in a while, you know, the nod to Luther. And one of the hardest things often when people have sinned and done a horrible thing is to convince them that God actually loves them. So even Luther, who was a cranky old dude, right? But wonderful and intelligent and, you know, earth-shattering. God's true nature is to love people who are troubled. Isn't that nice? Now, this is right where I started to say to you, God's heart, is God's heart wrath or is God's heart love? The Lutheran line and the scriptural line is God is love. Different from every other religion where they say um, God loves, that's not the same as saying God is love. The action of loving is not the same as the being of loving. God's true nature is to love people who are troubled. Have mercy on those who are brokenhearted. If you've ever had your heart broken, or maybe today this is the day, um, one of the things that can happen is that you feel very isolated and as if no one loves you, right? You've heard this from children. Nobody loves me. I mean, it's classic adolescent refrain. I'm alone and nobody loves me. Right? God's true nature is to love people who are troubled, have mercy on those who are brokenhearted, forgive those who have fallen over and over and over again, and refresh those who are 
exhausted. Because frankly, sin is wearing. Being alone is tiresome. Feeling unloved breaks you. But the nature of God is that he loves you. Turn it over from Chrysostom. In fact, God loves us more than we love ourselves. Kind of startling. Because self-love is something that we really, really excel at. We're really quite fabulous at it. Grab a Bible. We're going to look at John chapter 8. It's one of the, again, most beautiful stories in the scriptures. Um, Vicar, can you just get the page number in kind of the standard issue Bible there? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel. So it's going to be about, you know, three quarters, no, not quite three quarters, yeah, maybe half an inch from the end, three quarters maybe. What page? 894. 894, if you're scoring the game at home, page 894. So this is... Don't you all wish your children were this obedient? You just put them in one place and they stay there and, you know, don't move, they don't cry. You're fabulous parents. All your children are like this, I know. Christmas is going to be wonderful for your child. Put them all around the tree. It'd be great. This is such a beautiful story. Uh, see if you can find yourself. Verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's across the Kidron Valley. And he often prayed there. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It was a regular place. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So he walked down the Mount of Olives from the east. The east is to his back. And he comes up the Kidron Valley and through the gate into the temple. The Messiah will return from the east. We face east in our baptism. Jesus comes from the east on Palm Sunday. Jesus will come back again from the east, and Jesus comes to this woman from the east. Every absolution is a resurrection. Every time you get forgiven, you've been raised from the dead. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. This is Jesus, the rabbi, and then more. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. Now, the way this is written, caught in adultery is somebody walked in. There are eyewitnesses. Caught here is, there's no doubt. And you'll notice even she doesn't protest. So, you know, somebody was, had an iPhone and was recording, right? The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. You're free to ask where the man was. You're also free to remember it's a patriarchal society. And sometimes people just run faster than other people. So explain it as you like. But um, the result would be the same. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing them in, her, in their midst. So this is in their midst means she's in the middle and surrounded and there's no escape. And they said to him, teacher, rabbi, smart guy, holy guy, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such. And you can, uh, you shouldn't, 
but you can, you know, go on YouTube and watch people be stoned in the Middle East for adultery now, in the last 30 years. It's horrible and you shouldn't watch it. But what you'll see is people who are in the midst and destroyed in the most barbaric possible way. What do you say? Moses said this, what do you say? And so there are bad possibilities here. One possibility is that he agrees with Moses and then they stone the woman. So an act of violence in response to an act of sin. The other possibility is that he disagrees with Moses and then they can stone him for blasphemy. Now, you can argue about did they really stone people and how, really, how, you know, how much really are they in danger and what was the cultural practice in you know, 29 AD. And yeah, you can argue about all that all day long. Uh, it doesn't change the narrative of the story, which is people have sinned, people are in danger, people are being sorted, and the question is whether or not God is love. Uh, they said to him, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus went down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Nobody knows what he wrote, although plenty of people speculate. But it would be fun to know when you meet Jesus in heaven, you can ask him. And they continued to ask him. So you can see this. Uh, it looks like a press conference at the White House, right? It just is sort of, you know, people yelling uh, to get recognized. You can feel, feel the badgering and sort of the pressure and, you know, people trying to ignore it and it can't be ignored. And if we just turn up the pressure high enough, somebody will break and we'll get what we want. And nothing changes. Human beings are so interesting. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, and you know this, of course, this genius answer. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So have a go if you meet the criteria of holiness. Right? If you're the sort of person so holy that you can stand in judgment of other people, uh, you're up first. And then the most interesting thing he bent down and he wrote again with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest, the elder, which is the scripture's way of saying they went away beginning with the smartest. They left smartest to dumbest. That's how they leave. Because if you're old in the scriptures, then you're smart. And if you're young in the strictures, then you're dumb. Anybody younger than me, try to remember this is biblical application to your own life. <laughs> I'm just trying to, Megan. So, uh, uh, what could possibly have happened? Tim, what are you doing, man? What are you doing back there? If you're not going to nod off, fall forward, okay? Good. It's a, all right. So they, they, they begin to leave, you know, oldest to youngest, smartest to dumbest. And then you have this remarkable exchange. And this is all set up then for you. Because now the question comes to you, right? 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus looked up and he said to her, where did everybody go? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Right? So what are the possibilities there? Who are the possibilities? What are all the possibilities of condemnation? At least three. What, what would they be? Who would be there to condemn her? Who, what would you say? I should have canceled this week. What? Come on. <laughs> yeah. The people is one possibility. So she is alienated and condemned by her community, right? Be it religious or just kind of full community. So one possibility is other people. And my guess is that you often feel condemned by other people when you sin or you're afraid that you will be, right? That other people, it's sort of the, you know, privacy statutes now. You know, the difference between you and your kids, me and my kids is, you know, if everybody saw my internet searches, what would they say? But, you know, to kids, um, instead of being concerned about everybody, they just basically change the rules and say, none of these things are things to be ashamed of anymore. So everybody's everything is everywhere, right? So you kind of go, I mean, there's a couple of ways out of any problem, right? You can change the, help me, you Trekkie fans, Kobayashi, Kobayashi Maru, who knows this? Who's a Trekkie? What is it, Kobayashi Maru? How did he, how did Captain Kirk get through officer training school? Don't you remember this? Are you people not cultured? <laughs> Like a Star Wars. No, uh, no. It, well, you go to officer training school. There's a simulation that ends the universe. For any answer you plug in, it ends the universe. How did he become the youngest Starfleet Starfleet commander? He rewrote the code so there was a way out. Don't you remember this, Kobayashi Maru? I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Go Google it up. <laughs> remember, we did this already. Always have a way out. Well, there's no way out here. So, one possibility is the community condemns her. That's, an, that's one possibility. Who else condemns you when you sin? Who else? The yourself, the government. So we'll put government with community. Yourself. So you, everybody else in the room, and the baby Jesus. Yes. So there's three possible condemnations here. God, others, and yourself. Right? So Jesus cleverly, man a few words apparently, bundles it all up together in one question. Now, right now, everybody's gone home and you're with me who condemns you. So tonight when you lie in your bed and you think about the things that you've done today and everybody else has gone home and it's just you and Jesus, the question should come to you roughly at the Our Father point, forgive us our trespasses. And then your question would be, what were the trespasses? And who would be forgiving of them? Jesus was left alone with her. The woman was standing before her. Jesus looked at her and said, where did everybody go? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go and 
You don't have to sin anymore. You're free. The last words in private confession. Go, you're free. This is where they come from. Now, you can think about yourself when you've done a horrible thing and then you are, are standing in front of the Lord and uh, your friends in the mirror, right? Who are the people that condemn you? God, your community, and yourself. Which one is hardest for you to get over? God, that's good. I mean, that's one. You don't have to. I put, I, you know, only the bravest people and those of uh, the character of my wife and not me who wants to talk about everything would answer that question. So, uh, you know, one possibility is that God condemns you, but that's really a very slim possibility. Next to zero. Zero, actually. Because if he dies on the cross for you, that's his way of telling you, I've cleaned everything up and you should, you should come along. You should catch up. That's right. Right at the gospel point. Way in, son. That a boy. Like John the baptizer jumping in the womb when he saw Jesus. Same, same. So uh, one possibility is that, as the, is that you know, God doesn't forgive you. But you should come Christmas Eve and you should hear about how God loves you so much that he'd be like you so he could forgive you. But it is, in fact, true. You know, another one is that um, people's families can't forgive them. I mean, I've talked to you, you know, one other time I think about, I had a good friend whose father disinherited him and he's never recovered from it, you know, 30 years later. It wasn't the money. It was that his own father said to him, you're no son of mine. And his dad was a bum. I mean, this was a clear-cut verdict in favor of the kid. But you know, if you, say to your, if you say to your kid, you're no son of mine, or you're no daughter of mine, um, that is a long way back, friends. So, or your, or your, or your best friend <laughs> gives you up. Fred Niedner, Niedner, who was a professor at Valpo back in the days when I taught there, uh, once said in a sermon, we'll know that we've forgiven everybody when we start to name our children Judas again. Right? But even that seems uh, possible. More, the most, the thing I deal with most is not God and other people. It's people who can't forgive themselves. And when you've had a rigorous confession uh, and things have stacked up against you, or You've done a thing that you can't believe that you are actually capable of doing. You know, at that moment, your life changes. And then uh, the question is whether you can live with yourself. And so, you know, here you go. This noun quote. One of the greatest dangers in the spiritual life is self-rejection. When we say, if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. And I've heard that literally a million times. If you actually knew me, you wouldn't love me. If I told you what I've done, you would never speak to me again. If people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. We choose the road toward darkness. 
Often we are made to believe that self-deprecation is a virtue called humility. But humility is, in reality, the opposite of self-deprecation. It is the grateful recognition that we are precious in God's eyes, so God loves me, and that all we are is pure gift. To grow beyond self-rejection, we must have the courage to listen to the voice calling us God's beloved sons and daughters, and the determination always to live our lives according to this truth. So, every Sunday you come and the very first thing that happens after you say, um, I'm baptized, is that we say, it was a hard week, wasn't it? And there must have been some things that weren't holy. And your sins just aren't good for you. And that holiness has certainly spoiled your joy. And wouldn't it be nice if we could get things back to level or maybe a little better than that? And so that we all know that we're in the same boat and there's not sort of a distinction between me and my sins and all the rest of you, the community who surrounds me, in whose midst I am, who might stone me if they knew me, we all kneel down together because we're all the same. And this is very difficult for the proud to say that they're just like the person next to him who abuses their spouse or steals from work or had an affair with the secretary or pick something. But if you're brave enough to kneel down, this is what will happen to you. If you won't believe the scriptures, believe Winnie the Pooh. I have been foolish and deluded, said the woman caught in adultery. I have been foolish and deluded, said he, and I am a bear of no brain at all. That is precisely the same thing as to say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and what I've left undone. Right? There's no difference here. I have been foolish and deluded. I went my own way. I walked into darkness. I don't love other people. I don't love myself. I don't even love you. I've been foolish and deluded, said he, and I am a man of no brain at all. You are the best bear in all the world, said Christopher Robin soothingly. Or, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, soothingly. Confession, absolution. Law, gospel. Sin, justification. Am I, said Pooh, hopefully, sanctification. And then he brightened up suddenly. Go and sin no more. 
It's everywhere if you just look for it. It's everywhere. It's even in Star Wars. What else is Star Wars than a resurrection story? A savior on the way. I think they may have, well, never mind. <laughs> Flip the sheet over if you like Latin. And to make the other side of the coin, to take the other side of the coin, absolution too becomes another matter. It is neither a response to a suitably worthy confession nor an acceptance of a reasonable apology. Your absolution doesn't come because you made a good confession. If you go to confession, there's every chance I might say to you, you've made a good confession, my son. But that's only to say to you, thanks for getting it all out. You did the right thing here. You know, we, we really need to get something on that wound. Absolvere in Latin means not only to loosen, to free, to acquit, it also means to dispose of, to complete, to finish. When God pardons, therefore, he does not say he understands. So last week, the prodigal son, no excuses, no deals. There's no excuse for your sins, and there's no deal you can make to get out of it, right? So God doesn't say, the circumstances, or he doesn't say, the stress you've been under. Well, that's not how it works. Nobody tomorrow gets to say more than, I'm a damn sinner. And then God replies. When God pardons, therefore, he does not say he understands our weaknesses or makes allowances for our errors. Rather, he disposes of, he finishes with the whole of our dead life and raises us up to a new one. Every absolution is a little resurrection. He does not so much deal with our derelictions as he does drop them down the black hole of Jesus' death. He forgets our sins in the darkness of the tomb. He remembers our iniquities no more in the oblivion of Jesus' expiration. He finds us, in short, in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, he puts us on his shoulders rejoicing and brings us home. That's you. And then this glorious prayer by Martin Frasman nerdy New Testament professor who could write poetry, right? I mean, this is just, you, you kind of, you would never expect it, but I mean, take this home and pray this tonight, right? The rising sun is not darkened by my dark yesterday. My hot rebellion of yesteryear has not dried this year's compassionate rain or parched the teeming earth on which I walk. It's just, you know, kind of glorious stuff. Sometimes you meet people who are kind of otherworldly. So, uh, the first part of this is to get you to say it about yourself. But then there's always the second part of this, which is to get you to say it about other people. Flip your Bible to Matthew 18. Vicar, find that page number, and we will see what happens next. Now, every congregation I've ever been in or seen across every denomination is, um, you know, they're always about Matthew 18, Matthew 18. Uh, it's a little like righteous anger. Everybody knows it exists, but nobody's ever done it. So I just sort of give you, you know, this is the way the church works. Now here's the thing. If you march into your HR department next Monday, 
so excited about this, I can assure you that it will go badly for you. <laughs> First, because as you know, the HR department works for your boss, not for you, you know? You thought it was your HR department, oh no, that's, come on. Everybody knows this. This is how the church should work. If you want a good church, um, this is what you want to do. So Matthew, did I have it right, Vic? Did you find it? Did I give it to you? You know, between my bad eyes and the pages falling out of my Bible, I'm barely fit to be alive. 815. I'm just hoping this Bible will make it to, you know, when I'm done. Because I, I sometimes I miss, you know, like the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not sure Jesus really said it because it's not in here anymore. <laughs> so anyway. All right, here we go, Vic. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Slam on the brakes. <laughs> Has anybody ever really done this in the church? What normally happens if somebody does a sin in the church? Or what would be the opposite of if your brother sins against you? Go and tell them his fault just between you and, two, you and him alone. What normally happens? Have you people ever been to church before? This should be like falling off a log, right? You tell someone else. What is the ladies group for if not to discuss the sins of others? Now, what? They do send quotes to Africa, but they talk about sinners why they send them. Now, here's the thing. It's not just limited to that group, you know. When people, you know, you phone in prayers about other people's sins or wonder what he really did, right? Yeah, so our default is to... Now, now here's the beautiful thing. This is so great, right? See that table right over there where Jody's leaning in? Oh yeah, yeah this totally. Is, this is common for her. Okay, so like I could tell you stuff about that, and frankly, the table next to him too. So uh, that's why we left it. Yes, exactly right. Now the good thing about that is, if you and I have a secret about that table, like if we know what Jody really did, but she doesn't know we know, and she doesn't know we're talking about it, we're flexing. Yeah. Oh yeah. We can condemn her. Over and over again. <laughs> Knowledge is power. Power corrupts absolutely. See, this is what happens. This is the great thing about a secret, right? <laughs> Only when we choose to use it for our advantage. See, this is the thing about gossip and secrets. You know, so if we can kind of get this whole half of the room to hate that whole half of the room, this whole half of the room has an advantage, this whole has a disadvantage when it comes to a vote, then this will be a block, and these people are slightly scattered, and then the majority will rule, and we'll be in hell. It'll be fabulous. If your brother sins against you, go and tell them directly. I had a guy, this is a true, true story. I had a guy in my congregation always seeking, in this congregation, always seeking power and political power particularly in the church. And there was a thing going on of which he didn't approve. And he said, I've told the pastor that he's a sinner and he doesn't listen to me. But they're meeting at four o'clock on Sunday. And he said, I'm gonna go. 
He won't talk to me about it, so I'm going to go to that meeting and disrupt it. I'm going to sin against him, and then he'll have to talk to me. Right? So I said to him, in my best pastor way, do not do that. And then on Monday, about 10 a.m., my phone rang with another pastor who started with, what the hell are you thinking about? You send your guy to my, to my meeting and you disrupt my meeting because... I'm like, he must have gone over my advice. What are we going to do about him? We could have a meeting. We could excommunicate him. Then he could counter with a lawsuit. Then we could be tied up for years, and then we'd have to take the money that we're spending on the poor and pay a lawyer. Or, you be me, my favorite game. How did we solve this? Huh? Put him in office. Yeah, that'd be one possibility. Yeah, the thing is, is, it's like people who want to be a bishop, they get what they deserve, right? No, I said, I said, it's like the last 10 seconds of any sporting event. What do you mean? He said, you're all going to watch football playoffs here pretty soon, right? They're going to call the game one way the whole time. And then in the last 60 seconds, when one team's trying to score to win, there's not going to be any pass interference calls. You know this is coming, right? It's like a basketball game. It's like the NCAA final, and somebody's all, oh, it's been like this all game, and then somebody goes in and gets hammered, and it's a no call. So I said to the guy, what are you going to do about it? I said, it's a no call. What do you mean it's a no call? I said, it's a no call. I said, if you don't take offense, and I don't take offense, there's no offense taken. And so there's no offense given. So it's a no call. And we'll all just go on like nothing ever happened. I suggest this to you for your Christmas holidays. <laughs> there are going to be all things that are going to happen in your, when you put all your families together, your miscreant uncle and, you know, that little liar of a cousin you've got and those kids who come home from college after one term and think they know everything. So, uh, Savannah, <laughs> my advice to you is, short of bodily assault, make it a no call. Because then we don't have to do anything, right? Because this is the gospel and not the law, and you can't force somebody else to come and see you. If I don't let you offend me, then there's nothing for you to come see me about. So a little bit of spiritual maturity would go an awful long way right here. Henry Nouwen has a beautiful quote where he says, we step over other people's sins. And now we just keep going. Now if you are with somebody who just keeps doing the same old thing again, yeah, at some point you've got to sort it. But my first bit of advice here in the church and in your own lives is it's a no call. Don't give offense, don't take offense. Don't give offense, don't take offense. But sometimes it does rise to a level, either through repetition, death by a thousand cuts, or something that you just is so against the Ten Commandments where you have to go to somebody and say, and what are you going to say? What would you say? If somebody hurts you, it's so interesting. What, what would you say? 
I mean, you can't, I'm not asking for the particular crime because I don't want you to incriminate anybody and, you know, God knows we're too busy to arrest anybody over the holidays. So I'm just in general, how would you approach this? I feel. Yes, that would be one way to go about it, I feel like, which is always a good entry point so since nobody in the last 40 years has said, I think. Thinking is largely out of style. One of the things I have to correct the vicar, you know, one of the vic vicar's biggest flaws, I'm sorry I have to, have to expose you in this way. One of, the, you know, one of the problems, one of the reasons he's not that good and will really struggle a lot in the ministry is because he's really rational. I know, think about it. The last thing you need is somebody thinking A to B to C. and maybe end up over a D past Z, and maybe never come home at all. How do you feel about that, Vic? Oh, <laughs> I regularly... <laughs> I rarely, I often say to the vicar, you know, stop being so rational. Because, of course, he presumes the rationality of the people that he's working with. That's not good at all. So one way you can, but it, I mean, partly what you want to say is all the things you learn here, which is, this is a sin and your sins aren't good for you. Challenge them to look in the mirror. <sighs> yeah, except I, I want to I a little bit, I want to back you off challenge and maybe walk them over and ask them, Alfred, to blow dry their hair, right? Um, I was struck this morning, I, you know, I'm up early and I'm looking through all my emails just to make sure everybody, nobody's you know, died or driven off the end of the earth. And I was struck this morning by, and of course every crazy person in America feels like they need to email me because I'm a pastor. And so, and even all the crazy pastors in the world who align with the crazy people in the world feel like they need to, and I was just struck this morning by the titles of the things that I was sent, how combative how us and them, how good and evil, how, and how war was the primary motif. Um, you can go to war, but at the end of a good war, everybody's dead. A hundred years war, right, in Germany. Why, why, did it, why did it finally burn out? They ran out of people. So one thing I would bump you toward would be to say, seems to talk about. Anybody read Father Joe? The book Father Joe? You, you're a good boy. You're a doubly good boy. <laughs> Father Joe was written by the guy who brought Ackroyd and Belushi to Saturday Night Live. It was written by a guy who, what was the name of the thing in England, the Muppety Satire Show? That was the first thing he did. That was all the rage. No, Black, Black, Black Adder is close. Uh, no, he was, a, anyway, he was a comedian and a satirist who always wanted to be a monk, believe it or not. And 15 years ago, he wrote a book about this, and it was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times Book Review, and it started like this. This is the best spiritual autobiography since the Confessions of St. Augustine. Now, that's going some, right? But it's such an interesting story. Um, and it's actually, if you ever, it's a, largely a story about the man and this priest that he met who cares for him, Father Joe. And it starts because he's a teenager and he's seduced by the next door neighbor woman. And the husband finds out and as a punishment, he takes him by the ear and 
makes him see the priest to confess. And so, you know, the fear and trepidation of him waiting for this priest to come. And so he goes to the priest and he spills it all out. And the priest, the very first thing the priest says to him is, I feel so sorry. Don't, don't you feel so sorry for the way she's been hurt? This was the woman who seduced him. Don't you feel sorry for the way she's been hurt? She must be a terrible, terribly wounded woman. There's a very interesting way to talk about somebody's confession. So they confess and the priest shows sympathy for at least their cohort in crime and however you want to. The point is, sin isn't good for anybody. And we confuse sin with anger because anger feels fabulous. You know, the, the meme sign that's gone around over the past six or seven years at every protest on either side. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. You know, I want to say, if you're holding up that sign, you're stupid. But nobody ever asked me to make a sign. I don't tend to march, so okay. Anger is not a valuable strategy. It's a short-term strategy for chaos, but it's not a long-term strategy for anything good. Although it feels good to us to punch somebody in the nose, I don't dispute it, uh, but it's not a way to live in love or community or in holiness. So, um, when you struggle and you go to somebody, you say, um, that was wrong or that was sin, and sins aren't good for you. Your sins aren't good for you. Or Jesus says your sins aren't good for you. So first about Jesus, then about you. You can and should say very clearly, you hurt me deeply. The way that Jesus looked at Peter after Peter denied him. You remember that little blurb in the, in the story from Monday Thursday? Peter denies him, the cock crows, and Jesus exchanges glances with Peter, nose to nose. If your brother sins against, it, against you, go and sin. Now, we didn't even do the punchline. If your brother sins against you, you should go see him. And you should go alone without uh, the men's group. Uh, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And, of course, that's what you're looking for. You're not looking to be self-righteous. You're not looking to be... Um, you're not looking to be um, justified. You're looking to have the community of your brother back and take brother in the most literal sense, okay? Now, I know, and we could spend weeks talking about exceptions to the rule. Child abuse, rape, um, pick something where the wounds don't go away. Um, and you... At any of those points, you should remember that this is the way of the gospel, not the way of the law. People are not forced into things. People have representatives. People have advocates. People, good people seek justice for people who have been dealt with unjustly, right? So I'm giving you your normal way, or Jesus is giving you your normal way to deal with people without anger, in love, toward the restoration of a sinner who's liable to go to hell. That's what's going on here. And, you know, if, if the church thought of three of those five things before it launched into whatever it does when somebody gets offended in a church, 
it would, it, the church would be completely different. We would not have the troubles that we have. Because Vicar, what did we do? We got out of, into trouble, we didn't stay out of trouble, right? So there you go. Now it could get worse. If he does not listen, take one or two others among with you, and every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there was a man who left with another woman from the congregation. She said to her husband, that's no way to be my husband. Nothing sort of worked. And then, this is a true story. Um, she went to the leaders of the congregation and they picked a morning and several noble women came and sat around her and prayed in the sanctuary. Meanwhile, the elders uh, got in a small plane and they flew to the place where they'd moved, where he'd moved with his new not wife. They banged on the door and uh, the woman opened the door and they said, we're here to get our brother back. And from inside, they heard his voice. I don't want to talk to them. And she began to shut the door. And one of the elders put his foot in the door and said, in the church, we tell you when you're in and we tell you when you're out. That is beautiful. That's your aphorism for today. And so then, it ended that, after long talking with their brother, two or three with them, he left the woman, got on the plane, flew back, and returned to his wife. Now, it doesn't happen that often. This is why I only have one story to tell you about that. <laughs> or it could be because it's 10 o'clock, I don't know. But I just want to encourage you in the fact that, you know, Chesterton, it's not that Christianity has been tried and failed. It's that nobody ever tried it. You might try it. This whole experiment on Saturday mornings is that you might try it, right? What, what would happen if you actually, without anger and in love for somebody, said, ooh, you really hurt me and I wish you'd come back? And then, if you were, nothing happened, you went and got somebody, preferably not your mother, and your best friend. We might go for neutral parties here, right? Somebody with some spiritual moxie. We've come to get our brother back, right? And what, happened, what would happen if this sort of went over time? Like it wasn't like a one-off deal. Well, we wash our hands of that and we're done. Get him out of here. What if you actually said, no, because your sins will kill you and hell is when you get your way forever and this is a bad choice, and we'd hate to have him get his way forever on this one. So maybe we care enough to put our time into this, right? Now, it can really go badly, and that's the end of this, you know, if it goes really badly. Um, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. This is often a text used uh, to point toward excommunication. And if he refuses, it could just be also explanation of whatever happened to Jerry, right? Um, but one must be super careful about that because uh, putting something into uh, the ear of 200 people and hoping it all is heard and received and treated properly, whew, that's a dangerous gambit. 
and you know, what would the church mean there? But if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So I posed the question to you the last time you ran into a tax collector, or since we live in Illinois, let's just skip, since we live in Illinois, let's just skip to Gentile, because that'll be a little easier. The last time you ran into a tax collector or a Gentile, how did you treat them? Come on now. Yeah, that's, how, that's probably how we did treat him. How would Jesus, when Jesus meets a Gentile or a tax collector, what does Jesus do? Yeah. So when you meet your idiotic brother in the faith who left his noble wife for a less noble woman, not his wife, and he won't listen to you, even if you fly there on a Saturday morning and try to bring him back, how do you treat him? With forgiveness, with another possibility, like Christopher Robin treats Pooh, like Jesus treats you, like you wish you were treated as in do unto others as you would have them do unto you, as in Jesus died for the whole world, as in that's the reason we have Christmas and Easter. You can see now from this why, the, why congregations don't work. Because Jesus says, you should do A, and of course, congregations spend all their time doing not A. And then we all look around at each other and go, what is going on? What's going on is all sorts of things that Jesus didn't ask us to do. But I just say to you, you know, and I'm only talking my book a little bit because I'm just about, you know, moving to Florida. So this is for you who are going to stick around. You should, if you want to have a place like this with these kind of people that does that kind of good and has that kind of a liturgy, and as a pastor like Nelson who loves your kids, then you might just want to listen to Jesus, especially when things go badly. You just might want to give it a try. If, if people said their prayers and actually give 10% and went to their brother when they were in sin and showed up every Sunday morning, y'all wouldn't know what to do. It would be unrecognizable what would happen. Because, you know, it's not that Christianity doesn't work, it's that nobody's ever tried it. It's not that it's been tried and failed, it's that nobody ever tried it. So, you know, just kind of think about this a little bit. Let me encourage you, though, finally, because it's time to go, about leaven and loaf. Or, as Pope Benedict once said, I have a mustard seed and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> it's all about lost sheep, it's all about scattering seed, it's all about a little seed that grows into a big tree. It's all about if you could just come along, just give it a try, you would find out that there's a paradise on the other side of the Eucharist. So, you know, um, try to take that home with you. So I give you this not as I'm going to go raise hell at that meeting so that pastor has to talk to me. I give you this as it's a no call. Or if it's a call, it's a, ooh, your sins aren't good for you. And if it's a, um, I don't care what you say, it's, we'll try it again next week or next year. And I still love you because forgiveness waits in advance. Last thing. You don't wait for other people to repent to forgive them. People are nailing Jesus to the cross. And he prays for them even as they wound him, even as they kill him. Father, forgive them. They're idiots. They have no idea what they're doing. 
which frankly could be a commentary on us four or five days of the week. So you forgive people in advance. You're always in a state of forgiveness toward people. Mercy, right? You're always in a state of love toward other people. You don't wait. When they repent, I will forgive. No. You forgive. And you act like you're a person who forgives. And you try to urge people into forgiveness. And then uh, it's the Lord's business after that. Where are the people that condemn you? I don't condemn you either. Okay. Go and be free. All right, let's pray. Take stuff home. Don't come next week. Come around the end of February. I'll send you a note. Because, you know, it's hard to remember things. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Happy Advent. Remember, I think it's the barbecue food truck on Wednesday if I can lure you in at 6 o'clock for free dinner. So, uh, you know, the best has been saved for last, I think. Come along. Bring your friends, and then we'll see you.